The other night, I was putting my daughter to bed. My daughter's four. And uh, she asked me a question about monsters. And uh, I told her what parents are supposed to tell their kids, and that is that there's no such thing as monsters. And she said, okay, um, but what's that? And so I said, Mia, that's the shadow of one of your toys. I picked up the toy and kind of shook it. She goes, oh, okay, okay. But what's that? And so I said, well, what's this? This is, that's actually a shadow from your bed, and I'm not going to move the bed. I'm just, you don't have to trust me on this one, but look, here's my hand, and you see the shadow. She's like, oh, okay. So she, uh, she seemed okay. She believed me. She fell asleep. And so, uh, so I, uh, I'm walking out of her room, and as I'm walking out of her room, the way our house works, I kind of turn the corner to go back out into the, uh, kind of a, the main hallway area. So I kind of turn out of her room, and I just see something coming at me. Uh, like out of nowhere, but I feel something coming at me and I screamed. I mean, I was like, and my wife came running over and she's like, are you okay? And I said, I I think so. And, um, she says, I came running because you started screaming, um, like a girl. And so I thought something was wrong. And I said, well, I came out, I was turning, I had left Mia's room. And as I turned, um, the kids had gotten these balloons the day before, and so the air kicked on. And so as I was turning, the balloon was coming towards the room, and we met. And uh, anyway, that balloon went to be with Jesus, but still, that was, that was tough stuff. And, uh, you, you know, and um, the, the thing is, that, like, I grew up, and instead of your parents telling you that there aren't monsters, you know, like, my family, they told me that there were. And that was the weird part. Like, my grandmother used to tell me that there was uh, a, a monster that lived in the basement of our house uh, whose name was Maria Candela. That, that was her name. And uh, any time that I misbehaved, she would say, Roberto, Maria Candela, she's waiting for you at the bottom of the stairs. And I, that would terrify me so much that I would like start behaving and start doing really good because I did not want to feel the wrath of Maria Candela. And, um, and, and here, but here's the thing that happens as you get older. Um, you get older, you find out that those things don't exist. And then you get a little bit older and you, you thought that there weren't monsters and then you realize that there really are. Um, except that they aren't living in the basement. They aren't in the closet. They aren't under the bed. They're living inside you just like they're living inside of me. And uh, they don't want to eat your brain like zombies. They don't want to, you know, dr- suck your blood out like uh, like vampires. But what they do want to do is, you know, they want to eat your future. They want to uh, suck the joy out of life. And listen, th- what I believe is like the Godzilla of monsters that lives in you, just like it lives in me, is this monster called pride. The pride, if you're not aware, I mean, let's let's even define it if we can. What is what is pride? Um, because sometimes we'd say, we, we, if you've been around here for a little while, you'd say, well, pride, why, why is that a bad thing? Um, because I have this great feeling when my, when my kids do something really good, you know, and you tell them you're proud of them. I mean, is that, is that a terrible thing? No, it's not. And that's not the kind of pride that the Bible talks about. When the Bible, um, when, when you have that feeling when your kids do something great, or even your sense of accomplishment of doing something, you say, man, I, I feel really good that I did that. That's not what the Bible's talking about. What the Bible's talking about, that, this kind of pride that the Bible says is a bad thing, that the Bible says that God actually opposes, is the kind of uh, pride that when you feel the need to prove that you're better than everyone else, when you're trying to show how great you are at the expense of everyone else, that's the kind of, of pride that the Bible talks about, this, this need to compare yourself incessantly. 
This desire that we have that has to tear down someone else's accomplishment so that we actually look better than, 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 than we really are. Because this pride that's in us, what it desires is to actually just somehow make us better than everybody else. And what it does is it just destroys everyone around me, everyone around you, everyone around us, so that we appear to be better. And what the Bible says is something totally different. What the Bible says in in Romans chapter 12, and I hope you have your notes handy, but here's what it says in Romans 12, verse 3. It says, as your spiritual teacher, I give you this piece of advice to each one of you. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of faith that God has given you all. I love that phrase that he says, a sane estimate. Not an insane estimate of your abilities or what you can do or can't do. A sane estimate. You see, it's when you recognize your own strengths and your own weaknesses and you realize what it is that you're good at and what it is that you aren't good at. And so sometimes, I mean, just for example, I mean, people have asked me, you know, so you teach. I mean, do you think you're a good teacher? And I would say, yes, I do. I do think I'm a good teacher. Do I think I'm the greatest preacher who's ever opened his mouth? No. I think I'm good. I want to get better. But once again, I think, but that, see, that's a sober estimation. But see, that's not, you know, I mean, like dispensing spiritual food, I'm good at. If I were to give you like real food, like phys- like f- food that you got to like chew, like I get in the kitchen and cook, you don't want to eat any of that. I give you food that I cook, you might die. It's bad. It's rough. Why? But that's just you recognize that I have strengths and the strengths that I have are gifts of God. And then the things that I'm not good at are just areas that God has not gifted me in. It's a sober estimation of what my strengths and weaknesses are. And that's why Paul says, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself. Because what that will do if we have these exaggerated ideas is that it will begin to twist us and reshape us and change who we are. And then, by the way, you want to be careful of these guys. You ever, you ever meet these people? Um, these are people that they'll put themselves down at something they're really good at. And they'll be like, hey, you're really good. No, no, I stink. I'm no good. Oh, no, we think you're the best. Really? Can we talk about that for a while? How awesome do you think I am? And, 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 then, and I mean, this is to me like maybe the most insidious type of pride, because this is the kind of pride where it's like they're, they're faking humility to try to fish a compliment out. And, uh, and, and listen, that this issue of pride and what we're going to spend our time talking about um, this this morning or now this afternoon is the issue in uh, the, this book called. Obadiah. Now, if you say Obadiah, never heard of it, that's okay, um, because a lot of people haven't. It's this little book in the Bible that's tucked away in the back of the Old Testament. It's in part of a group of, of books that are called the Minor Prophets, and they're not Minor Prophets because, like the big prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, those are like the major league prophets, and then these guys are in like AA and AAA. They're like kind of working hard to try to get a shot at the majors, you know. That's not what it is. They're called Minor Prophets because the books are generally shorter. But at the same time, um, this, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's one chapter long. And uh, we don't know much about the author. The name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh or servant of the Lord. And there's, uh, there's 13 other people in the Old Testament that are named Obadiah. So we know that it was a popular name. But here's what we also know is that Obadiah's message was not a popular one. And the reason is, is because he had to go from the Lord. He had this message and he had to share it to an entire nation. To the country of Edom, a group of people that were Israel's neighbors to the east, 
to tell them that judgment was coming. Now, the reason judgment was coming is because they were filled with pride. The book, uh, if those of you that are note takers and are interested in this stuff, um, the, uh, the book of Obadiah was written around 586 B.C., uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And um, Edom was there watching. And that's what we're going to read in just a moment, is that Edom was there watching, and uh, in their pride, they thought that that could never happen to them. And here's why this book of Obadiah is so important for you, like it's important for me, is that the, the story of Obadiah is that in their pride, they went to their destruction and never realized it, is that that could be our story as well. If we don't instead operate in humility, realizing that if that's what was happening to them, then maybe what I need to do is check my own heart to make sure that that doesn't happen to me. If that's happening to them because of their pride and arrogance, then maybe I need to humble myself before God so that it doesn't actually take place. But instead, what we're going to look at, we're going to see in this little book, is we're going to see how this pride eventually brings destruction. But instead, humility, humbling yourself before God, will bring restoration, will bring blessing, and bring peace. So we're going to start in Obadiah chapter uh, chapter one is the only chapter. And by the way, if you're still trying to find it, you get to like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you'll get to Joel, Amos, Obadiah. You get the next book is Jonah. You start reading about whales. Turn back. Uh, you start reading about Jesus. You went way too far. You got to turn back. But anyway, that's where it is. We're going to start in verse one. Here's what it says. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, You will bring me down to the ground, who will bring me down to the ground, though you ascend as high as the eagle. And though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If, ro- if thieves had come to you, if robbers at night, oh, how, they, uh, how you would be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau has been searched out. How his hidden treasures have been so- uh, shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you and no one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off. By slaughter. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things I mentioned that, um, that we want to talk about. And we're going to drill down in this first section and the first thing that pride does, can do to you or me, to us. And that is that pride poisons your perspective. It poisons your perspective. You see, several years ago I was teaching a message on Wednesday night. And I'll be honest, um, I thought it was going awesome. I mean, and I thought it was like some of my best teaching ever. And uh, I was doing I thought I was doing really well. And I knew this even I was teaching. And I'm like, this is awesome. I thought that as I was teaching, I'm like, this is awesome. I need to transcribe this into a book. That's how awesome this is. And so I get done, you know, and I'm so impressed with my own insights and whatever. And so I um, this is uh, so it's a Wednesday evenings before we had kids. And so Carrie's talking to someone after the after the service. And I walk over to, to Carrie and I say, so what do you think? 
And she goes, well, two things, really. She said, number one, that was a good message. Number two, you taught the whole message with your fly down. And I was like, excuse me, and uh, took care of that. And then, and then it was like weird because what I realized is now, like, you know, it's kind of like the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense, where Bruce Willis kind of puts the whole thing together. Like, no wonder they were laughing that much. No wonder everyone in the first three rows like had their head down the whole time because like looking at me was like kind of awkward because I'm looking at them, like look at how studious these people are this is this is what happens when you sit under good Bible teaching you know that's what I thought and then they were the, the jokes came and people were just I would say stuff that wasn't even that funny people would just be like roaring laughing because they're like the pastor's got his fly down that's what they're laughing at but I didn't know that the moral of the story is the next time you think you're awesome check your zipper um, no the moral of the story is. The moral of the story is, um, is that being prideful never ends well. It never ends well. One of the underlying themes of the Bible, as you read it from cover to cover, is that God opposes pride. God opposes proud people. Um, it's in your notes in, in James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Now, why was Edom proud, this country that was just to the east? of Israel. Now, why, why, were, why were they proud? They were proud because their capital city was a city called Petra. Uh, Petra was a rock city that was um, considered to be impenetrable. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about Petra. Petra, for centuries, um, people doubted the existence of this city, this city made up that is, an, that is a, a rock city. I mean, totally made up of, of, of rock. And um, it wasn't until 1812 that a Swiss explorer named Johann Burkhardt actually uh, discovered the rock city of Petra. He was a Bible believer, and he, actually, he had lived among the people of Jordan uh, for quite some time, and they wouldn't tell him where the existence of Petra was. They would not even speak of it. But uh, one of the things that the Edomites the, 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 the did was that... Um, I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. Let me just give you kind of a... This, this, I think this will make sense. Um, you know that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, the, the, the patriarchs of Israel... Uh, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, the descendants of Jacob became Israel. The descendants of Esau became Edom. Well, one of the twisted things that happened in their own philosophy and in their own worship and, 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 and religious beliefs was they began to almost worship, essentially worship Esau. And so as this Johann Burkhardt understood that, um, he said to them, he said, uh, after he had been there for quite some time, he said, I wish to offer a sacrifice to Esau. And so when he did that, uh, the, the people of Edom then said, um, well, then now we will take you to the city of Petra, which is where we offer our sacrifice. And, um, and this is, the, the city of Petra is absolutely amazing. I was there several years ago. Um, it is absolutely stunning. One of the things that makes Petra uh, so unique as an amazing, uh, such an amazing place, is that you have a city which at that time, like in the time of Obadiah, you had a million people living in this one city. But the en- there was only one entrance to the city. And the, the, the entrance to the city was um, 40 feet at its maximum and 12 feet at, at its smallest. In fact, we have a picture here of the entrance. This is the entrance to uh, the rock city of Petra. This is the only way you get in is right here. The only way you get in is right here. That's it. Now, um, 
And then you've got to kind of wind for quite a while before you get there. Now, the reason that this was such an such an amazing thing strategically is because you have a million people living in this city. It didn't matter how many uh, people were in the invading army. They had to go through this area to conquer you, to conquer the, the people living in Petra. And, and that's why it was said that it only took 20 people to guard a city of a million because they would sit at the very tops of the hills, and that's why you read in Obadiah, he says that though you you make your you who dwell in the cleft of the rock, they're, they're, even if you make your cleft, you're you're dwelling even higher. God says, "I'll still bring you down," and that's because they dwelt at the top of this rock, and all they would do to defend the city is everybody who would try to come into uh, Petra, they would just hurl boulders and rocks on them, and it, they, it, they'd end up being killed. And the invading army would say, "We can't get into this city; it's costing us too much men," and they would go uh, somewhere else. But just to give you an idea, that's how you get in. Here's the next picture and uh, this is how you you keep going and you see how how really narrow it gets there's another picture here um you still going you know you still got to keep winding through this and you keep going again and this is kind of as you get to the end and then you see the temple here which is where burkhart would said he wanted to offer the sacrifice when he really just wanted to see petra and then the last picture here we have is this is the temple that was carved out of the stone and um the where the sacrifices were offered is actually right here at the top of these stairs. And you see on this side, um, so that's a little bit bright, but right there is where they'd, they'd offer um, the, the, the sacrifices there. But this is just an incredible city and just a, an incredible work of art. And the reason that the, that the Edomites were so proud is they said, listen, this could never happen to us. Um, the, the, the Israel is getting invaded. Of course it's happening to them, but it could never happen to us. But here's what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As I mentioned that Isaac gave birth to Jacob and Esau and um, there was a rivalry between the two brothers and that continued. That continued even later on uh, that, that Esau hated Israel or that, that, that Edom hated Israel. And when Israel is, going, is leaving, the promise, uh, leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land, and in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, um, they get to the, the area of Edom where the Edomites are, and they're trying to cut through. The Edomites tell them no. And it all starts because of um, Esau. Now, I won't tell you the whole story, but basically, um, Jacob steals the blessing that Esau was supposed to have because even though they were twins, Esau was born first. So he was like a minute older. And the way it worked was if you were the older son, you got all the blessings, all the inheritance. And then essentially your brother kind of served you, you know, your younger brother. And so God kind of flips that and uh, works out this circumstance so that uh, Jacob ends up uh, getting the blessing. Um, and, and, but here's the thing is that the name Esau means um, it means red and it also means hairy. And that the reason they called him that was because um, he because he was when they, he they, he came out, he was all red and hairy. And then what do you call him? Let's call him red and hairy. You know, isn't it? but actually archaeologists have discovered a rendering of uh, Esau. In fact, we have a rendering of what Esau looked like right there, red and hairy. Um, and uh, so when you think of Esau, you know that he looked just like Elmo. Um, but here's the thing. They never thought that they could be captured, that, they, that the Edomites never thought they could be conquered. But essentially, eventually they were. By whom? The very same Babylonians that took out Israel. Now, let me read this to you from the book of Jeremiah. It says, thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the kings of Edom, Moab 
the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the, uh, the man and the beast that are on the ground, and by my great power, my outstretched arm, I have given it to whomever it deems, uh, seems proper to me. And now I have given all of these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. Now, the thing that's interesting to me in this is that Babylon was conquering everyone at that time. He's conquer- they're con- ba- the Babylonians are conquering everyone. And not only are the Babylonians conquering everyone, but Nebuchadnezzar in particular is brutal. The Babylonians, I mean, they are not showing mercy. You, they come into an area to conquer you, you either surrender to them or they will destroy every last person. The reason that Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, which is what this whole thing is, is because Jerusalem had rebelled against uh, the Babylonians. And so Nebuchadnezzar came to, to, to make them an example of in that region. And he just leveled everything. He destroyed the walls. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the people. I mean, it was it was insane, everything that that, that he was doing. And, and here's the thing is that all of this is happening. And instead of the Edomites saying, maybe this is an opportunity for us to repent. For us to really draw close to God because we may get conquered as well. Instead, pride rose up because what pride does is that it poisons your perspective and you're not thinking clearly to think that this may actually happen to you. And so they completely missed the point. I mean, if we can be honest for a moment. I mean, how many people were filled with pride um, like the Edomites thinking that, you know, no economic shakeup could affect me? I mean, come on, you know, nobody, it couldn't touch me. All my money's in real estate. That's as safe as it could be, right? I've got my portfolio mixed, you know. I mean, I've, I've got all kinds of, 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 of stock and I've got my annuities and I've got all this. And I mean, there's no way that I could get, uh, that I could be hit and get what happens. And they get hit. And you know that over the last two and a half years, I've seen people experience so much pain over this. And what they experienced was was pain because these this these investments and that land and those houses, that's what they were putting their trust in. And the word of God goes out saying, listen, some trust in horses and others in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord, our God. And people say, oh, well, you can do that. But see, I'm trusting in this and I know it's never going to fail. And it's an opportunity for humility. And you know what happened in, in, in the people that, I, that I've talked to over the last couple of years? It's been an amazing thing that God has done. God has opposed them at the place of their pride. And as God opposes them at the place of their pride and brings them low, now they're humbled. And you know what takes place? Now many of these folks have come to know the Lord as a result of this humbling. Because there's two things that can happen. You can actually humble yourself. And that's what the Bible says. Humble yourself before the Lord. Or you can let God do it. The problem is when God does it, it's like a lot more painful than when we do it ourselves. And um, and that's the very thing that happens. And the challenge is, is that the reason that pride poisons your perspective is that, that all you see is you. You couldn't imagine that anything that's not in, in, in your forecast that could actually take place. And that's the thing with pride is that God cannot bless you when you're proud. And if because if he did, you would he, you would think that it was because of you, that you're the source of your own blessing. So instead, here's what God does. 
he, he, he will humble us so that you, we will realize that the source of our blessing is really him. So he says, God says, to, says through Obadiah to the Edomites, you're going to go down. But then he says to them, why? And look what he says. This is where it really gets interesting. He says, for violence against your brother Jacob, verse 10, shame shall cover you and you'll be cut off forever. In, that, in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But... You should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. You should not have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you have not gazed you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among uh, among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is upon the upon all the nations is near. And as you have done, so it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. And yes, they shall drink and swallow and they shall be as though they never had been. If you pause there and give me your attention, um, the second thing that I want you to note is that pride distorts your decisions. It distorts your decisions. You, 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 you read what happens here in this, and it's like, they're experiencing calamity, and you're laughing? They're experiencing these difficulties, and you're trying to exploit them in the day of their, of their distress? Is that, is that how it's going? And listen, don't think it's just them. All of us deal with this, Right? If you say, well, I'm not really sure I deal with pride like that. Listen, the next time you get a picture of like 10 people, maybe it's like a family portrait or family reunion, who are you focused on? How do you determine whether it's a good picture or not? Everybody else? No, not everybody else. You look at yourself first and you're like, no, that's a good picture. Everybody else is blurry. Yeah, well, that's the way it goes sometimes. That's a great picture, though. We had we had this happen um, at uh, the, the, you know we we took some uh, some fa- we did some family portraits and went to the studio um, for Christmas and we took our, our holiday pictures and there's a picture that I wanted to use and the problem is is that um, right as we we're about to take the picture Mia says something to Carrie and Carrie turns her head and so like you don't even see all of her face but you see, like her ear is like kind of the main thing and so she's turning and you see her ear. And and, uh, and I'm like, man, that's a great picture of me. And she's like, you can't even see my head. And I'm like, well, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. And uh, and and so and the weird part is this, is that we, we all do that to some degree. The problem is, is that when you are solely focused on yourself, it completely distorts reality and it distorts the decisions that we make. The verses that we read. Um, it has we read that it says in the day of their calamity, the day that they're getting invaded, destroyed, wiped out. It shows this it says that Edom is laughing, mocking, gloating, boasting. And then if you if you read that, he says you should not have even been like one of them. They were actually even going in while the Babylonians were wiping them out, going and stealing from Israel as they're being destroyed and being invaded. And I mean, where do you have to be in life? To where you, you're, you're sitting there and your next door neighbor's house is getting robbed and you're in your house laughing about it. 
I mean, how far gone do you have to be? But that's what pride does. It totally distorts reality. It, it, it poisons your perspective. And then it distorts the decisions um, that, that, that we make. You see, the Bible says this. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, it's almost like in these verses, God recounts the charges against um, Edom. And that's why eight times he says, in that day, you should not have. You should not have. You should not have. And so eight times he says, on that day or in that day. And he shows them what pride has done, that it actually distorts them. That instead of weeping that their brother is getting wiped out and causing them to get right with God, they laughed. When they see this happening, they mocked it and saw it as an opportunity to gain something from those who were being afflicted. And instead of helping Israel, they took advantage of Israel. And see, there, there's this one verse in verse 14 that, that we might just kind of gloss over. And he says, you know, you should not have stood at the crossroads. And we're like, ah, who knows what that means? And we go on. But I think that that actually tells us just how vindictive and prideful this group had become. Um, in uh, the main road that connected Africa, the Middle East, and then Asia... Um, was this road that was called the King's Highway. In fact, we have a map of it. Um, the star, by the way, is where uh, Petra is. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They came out of Egypt, and then they went through what's called the King's Highway. And if you see, uh, there's all these different roads, but the King's Highway is the one that cuts through. Petra's right there. It cuts through Petra, and then it gives you the opportunity. You can take it all the way out to Babylon, or you can keep going out here and take it all the way to um, India, China, Asia, uh, the, any, anywhere there on this side, same thing, coming through, and then you can take this all the way out. But here's what happens. And if you notice in verse 14, he says, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off among those who had escaped. So here's essentially what happens. This thing called, this road called the King's Highway, when I went to Petra, uh, whenever it was, about 11 years ago or 10 or 11 years ago, I rode on the King's Highway. Still there. By the way, it's about as paved, just about as well as I'm guessing it was in Moses' day. It wasn't all that good. Um, but, so it's essentially still like a dirt road. But the King's Highway is still there. People are still using it. I mean, this thing's been around for thousands of years. And it was considered um, the gateway to the world. I mean, it was the, the crossroads of the world is what was happening um, in this, in this, in this area, uh, in, in, in this, the King's Highway. So here's what happens. So the children of Israel, some of them escape from the Babylonians and they're trying to get to the King's Highway because if you can get to the King's Highway, you can go anywhere in the world and still survive. But here's what they do. What we read is, is that they actually met Israel, the, the Edomites, they met Israel on the King's Highway just to wipe them out. Because they were few, because they were disorganized, because they were scared, because they were scattered, and they saw them as easy prey to wipe out. How do you do that? How does a, how does a group of people do that? It's what happens when pride goes unchecked. Now, let me ask another question, because maybe this one is even more important. And that is why. Why, why do people actually become prideful? The reason that people become prideful and any of us can become it, it's because there's this fundamental desire that all of us have. Every single one of us wants to matter. Every single one of us wants to be respected. Every single one of us, we, we, we desire for people to care about us. And so when pride rears its ugly head, and if you notice, one of the things that, that the Bible says always is that people get puffed up in pride. 
It's like they're, they're inflating themselves to seem bigger than they actually are. And so what they desire, their, their goal is, is that they just, we want to matter, we want people to care that, that we matter, and, and that's why we become prideful. And so pride tricks us into believing that the only way that we matter is if someone else doesn't matter. The only way that we matter is if we can actually make this other person completely irrelevant. Because in, in the world of pride, everything is based on who's first, who's second, and who's third. Which is not based in reality. But it's what pride does when pride messes with you and it distorts your decisions. Uh, there's this weird thing that happens, um, and I'm guessing that it probably happens on your street the same way it happens on my street. Um, on my street, when somebody gets a new car, there's this thing that happens over the next six weeks where then everybody on my block starts getting a new car. And, uh, and then th- th- there's like, well, then, because when somebody gets a new car and they drive it down the street, you, the first thing you do is you look at your car and you're like, hmm, not that hot. There's a time that it was. Unfortunately, I didn't own it then. But, the, uh, you know, so you got this thing, right? And you're thinking, uh, some of you got this, some of you didn't. It's all right. Someone will, someone will explain it to you on the way to lunch. Um, but, but here's the thing that happens is that you, you look at it and you say, well, well, now they got a nicer car than me and their house is actually a little bigger than mine, so I should get a new car. Because then I don't want, I don't want to feel like th- that guy, you know. And, and, and so what we do is, now, here, what is that? That's pride. Because we don't want to be the guy who's last. We want to be the person who's first. And so we actually start making decisions that are very, very unwise for us because we're not centered in, in, in reality and really centered in just saying, any, whatever I have is really a gift from God. What I need to do is appreciate the fact that I have it. That only 8% of the world actually owns a car, period. So the, if, I, if, if I do have a car, I mean, besides, I'm, I'm hugely blessed as it is. But whenever we start playing the compare game, because that's what pride loves to do is play the compare game. Um, we start feeling superior because maybe our marriage is better or our career is better or our car is nicer or our grades are better or our waist is thinner and, and all this stuff starts going on. And listen, we start living with that belief. And that's what pride does. You say, well, I'm really great. Well, why? Because look at that person. That's not the way you do it. That's not the way that the Bible talks to us about how to really... Listen, what did it say? Have a sober estimation of yourself. Don't cherish exaggerated opinions of yourself. And here's how we do that. You find people that you think are doing worse than you, and you say, see, I'm doing so much better. That's not the way to do it. And what it does is it actually creates not a sane estimation, it creates an insane estimation of who we are. Because what we aren't, we're trying to compare ourselves to other people when really what we should be doing is looking at God and saying, God, everything I have is because of you. And I, what I really need to do is be humble and grateful for the fact that you've given me anything at all because I really don't deserve anything at all. Um, I should think about this for a minute. And this may not start where you think it's going to go, but let me explain it. Just give me a second. I want you to think about the Sabbath when God gives the children of Israel a day off. You see, a lot of times we think that the Sabbath was just about a day off. You know, the children of Israel were slaves. They never had a day off. And so God gives them a day off. And that's how they remember that they weren't slaves anymore. That's part of it. But there's something um, maybe a little bit deeper than that. That Maybe that that is like the 1.0 perspective. But let's maybe take it to like a graduate level, if we can, of what the Sabbath was really all about. Um, When the children of Israel were slaves, their worth was based on how many bricks can you bake? That's how you when you're a slave in Egypt, that's how you decide whether you have any worth or value or not is how many bricks can you bake? 
And so when God says, here's the deal, guys, you're going to, you were slaves and I'm bringing you, I brought you unto myself with an, with, with an outstretched arm and I brought you to myself that you might be my own special people, God says in Deuteronomy 5. He says this, he says, you work six days, but then on the seventh day will be a Sabbath, a day of rest. Why is that? Because what God was trying to show these people who had been slaves is that there is worth and value beyond what you can produce. There is that people, listen, will love you beyond what it is that you can do for them. And, and, and part of this, once again, they were, they were in a place where all, it's what they did that created their worth and created their value. And the thing that God says is, I want every seven days, I want you to take the Sabbath. And here's what I want you to do. Take the day off and simply know this, that you're loved and valued by God with no strings attached. And listen, that's the way it's supposed to be. That we're loved, that we're valued, that we're appreciated, that we're respected. Um, Not because of what we produce, but listen, just because of who we are. Um, And that was supposed to not only carry from be part of our relationship with God, but part of our relationship with other people. And that that's why we cared about um, that's why we care about those in, in our family and those are our friends and, and, and the people around us. And it was because it wasn't about what they could do for us or what we could do for them. We love them because we love them. And that's why what pride comes in and says, well, you could be loved by others and you could be respected and feared and you could be all of this. But you've got to perform because that's what, how people are really going to care about you and love you and desire you. And, and what happens is you start you get on that and you get on that treadmill and you know what's going to happen. You're, you're, there's a lot of movement, but you're not going anywhere. And, you, you know, you're like the gerbil on the wheel and you're just you're working and you're working and you're working and you're working to try to earn something that, listen, God has already freely given you. That's the insanity of pride is that we're trying to earn something that God has already given to us. And instead, what, what happens is. Is that pride, listen, um, it, it, it kills people. Pride is what gives people nervous breakdowns, it's what hurts families, it's what devalues the people around us, what put us, puts us at odds with God. Listen, it's because we're living a lie. Because when you start puffing yourself up, you've got to start to maintain that. And then when that's not enough, you've got to try to puff yourself up a, a, a little bit more. And, and the reason that we're living a lie, listen, when we're puffed up in pride is we're distorting who God created us to be. Pride says, listen, I don't need anybody else but me. That is a lie. And listen, when you're when you fill yourself with pride, God has to oppose you. God has to oppose you because he loves you too much and he loves me too much and he loves us too much to leave us in that distorted, corrupted condition. Well, look at the end. This is the, the, the best part, I think. Look at verse 17. Let me see how the story ends. It says, but on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance and there shall be holiness the house of Jacob, Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. And they shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain in the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. And the south shall possess the mountains of Esau. And the lowland shall possess Philistia. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim. And the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. 
And the captives of Jerusalem who are in uh, Seraphed shall possess the cities in the south. And then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, here's, here's the end of it. And that, here's the last point. And that is that pride forsakes your future. It forsakes your future. You, you don't realize this, but it's like, he, here's what he's saying. is you're so proud, but you're going to fall, and then you're going to be gone. And the challenge that we have is, is, is simply this. I mean, how, how, do, how do you erase pride? And one of the things that we think we do is I'm erase pride by saying, I'm not going to think about myself. I'm not going to think about myself. But all you end up doing is kind of just thinking about yourself. Right? Um, I, I, pride is kind of like this. I mean, I, I think I told you guys last week I've been trying to eat healthier over the last few months. And uh, I'm going to tell you something weird that you may think is totally weird about me, but I'll just tell you because I try to be honest with you. Um, I actually dream about chocolate cake. And I, I'm not even kidding. I've actually dreamt more than once that I was eating a, cho- a piece of chocolate cake. And uh, the other day, I, my alarm usually goes off at 5. And um, I, the, uh, it was about five, I, Somehow, you know, I, how do you do that? Like you just sit snooze on, the, on your phone to, to make the alarm go off. But I, somehow I did that. So it was like 5.20. Uh, and I'd gone to bed really late the night before. And uh, so Carrie wakes me up at about 5.20. And she's like, hey, are you getting up? And I'm like, oh, Carrie, why did you wake me up? I was having this awesome dream that I was eating a piece of chocolate cake. And, uh, and I was only halfway through it. And, uh, and, and she's like, oh, sorry. Would you like a banana? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't. That's not even fun. Um, and, and so, but, but the thing is this, is that, you know, what, because I'm, I'm focusing on, on not eating stuff that I really like, um, I find myself thinking about it even when I'm not trying to think about it. And it's the same thing, like if I were to say to you, like, listen, whatever you do right now, whatever you do, under no circumstances, think about a hot fudge sundae. Under no circumstances. Do not think about the, the, a hot fudge sundae where they start out with a base of hot fudge and they put the scoops of vanilla, then they put some hot fudge in between each side and roll it up, throw a little caramel just to mix it up, and then they, hot fudge, they, uh, they throw some fudge on the top and then they whip cream it and cherry on top. And then if you go to like Jackson's and Dania, they give you the little sidecar of, uh, of fudge. Don't think about that. Think about whatever else you want. Think about tuna fish if you want, but don't think about hot fudge. Do not think about hot fudge sundaes. Guess what? Half of you are going to go get a hot fudge Sunday after because that's all I can think about. Even though I'm thinking, I think that's the thing that happens with pride is that you say, well, I'm not going to think about myself. And you end up thinking about yourself. And the reason is, is that you can't not think about yourself. You know why? Because you're always on your mind, just like I'm always on my mind. So if you say, well, I'm not going to think about myself, I'm just going to focus on I'm going to help people. So think about even that, that statement. I am going to help people. So it's like, well, what, what is it? What are you going to focus on? I'm going to think about what I'm going to do. To do something about not that's not me. So, but see, the key is not really that it's just not going to think about yourself or whatever. The key is, what are you thinking when you're thinking about yourself? That's the key. And that's the thing that happens with the, uh, the Edomites. What, what God says to them, here, here's, the, here's the problem. The problem is, is um, the problem is pride. The problem is, is that you will not replace pride with the one, with the one thing that actually kills pride, and that's humility. And so, because they can't forsake their pride, it actually ends up forsaking their future. Guess what? The Edomites are gone. Right? You, you probably never met an Edomite. Hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm an Edomite. Hey, no kidding. i got a friend from there. No, you never met an Edomite. Right? The Edomites don't have a World Cup team. No, right? They don't. They don't why? They're gone. They're, all, they're done. 
Why? It's over. And so the Babylonians eventually came and wiped them out. And here's the thing that I find so fascinating is that God uses the Babylonians to discipline Israel. And you know what happens? They learn the lesson and they're humbled in their 70 years of captivity. And then eventually they come back. They come back into the land and they take more land. The Edomites will not humble themselves. And guess what happens to them? They're destroyed. They're totally gone. Now, for those of you um, that are like really into like Bible prophecy and things like that, and that's the kind of thing that really floats your boat. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me. Um, the Bible says in Revelation that when everything starts going crazy, Antichrist, all that, and, and he starts turning his, um, his effort towards destroying the Jewish people, it says that the Jewish people actually will leave Israel for a period of time to be uh, to be safe in a particular place. And if you read this passage in, in Revelation 13 um, and, and a couple of other passages in the Old Testament, what most Bible scholars believe, where, where do they end up going? They end up going to the rock city of Petra. The very place that the people said, hey, can you believe that they're getting wiped out? That will be the place, once the Edomites got wiped out, will be the place where they will find rescue and safety during this incredibly difficult time. In um, in Israel's history. Now, God says two things at the end of this book. He says the first one, as I mentioned to you, he says Israel will be back in the land and they'll take more than before. And then he says, number two, Edom, you'll be gone because God opposes uh, proud people. Um, And the reason that God opposes pride is because it can it robs you of everything that you can become. In the book of Daniel, God um, uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the king we've been talking about, uh, the king of the Babylonians, is filled with pride. He looks around at everything he has in Babylon. He says, look at this great Babylon that I've created. And there's this voice from heaven that says, the watchers are watching you. Walk in humility. And about a year's time later, it says 12 months later, he's walking through the hanging gardens uh, of Babylon, which are one of the wonders of the ancient world. And he says, look at this great Babylon that I have created by my own hand. And then the God says to him, he says, well, now for seven seasons, about almost two years, um, he'll, he'll be given over to that. And it said, the Bible says that, I mean, he essentially goes crazy for these, for these two years. And his nails grow out, his hair grows out, and he acts like an animal, and he eats with the beasts. And, and, fat, and then, but when he comes to his senses after these seven seasons, these um, almost two years, here's what, um, here's what he says. It says this, at that, the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say of him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counsels and nobles returned to me and I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the king of heaven of all of whose works are truth and his ways are justice and all who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Here's the thing that happens. The guy that had probably more power than maybe anyone else has experienced on this planet um, 
in the known world. This guy, absolute monarchy, didn't matter what he said, changed his mind the next day, his word was the law. He looks after this scene and he says, here's the deal, no one can be proud because everything comes from God. Everything comes from him. Listen, when we're filled with pride, it's because we forget that everything that we have comes from God. And um, we, we get filled with pride because we want to become more than we are. But Nebuchadnezzar's story, what he says here after his experience, he, he teaches us that pride actually makes us less than we were created to be. And so how does God desire for us to live? Well, in a couple books over from Obadiah, there's a guy by the name of Micah. And he asks God, and he says, God, what is it that you desire from me? And this is what God says to him. It's the last verse in your outline. He says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justly, to do the right thing. To love mercy, to do it in the right way. And then to walk humbly with your God, to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. That's what God desires of you and me. Because if we will actually do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God in our marriage, you know what will happen? We'll experience harmony. If we will do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God in our careers and with those around us, we will find, here's what the Bible says, that God actually lifts up the humble. That promotion doesn't come from the east or the west or from the south, that God puts one up. He raises one up and he puts down another. You see, that if we will actually do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, that when it comes to relationships and finding that special someone and, and all of that, what will happen? That we will, because it won't become about us. It'll become, how do I find this person that our goal is to serve God together? And in your walk with God, listen, one of the reasons that people aren't growing is because of pride. It's because we aren't doing the thing that Micah said. We aren't doing justly. We aren't loving mercy. We aren't walking humbly with our God because God gives us his word and he shares with us what he wants us to do. And then we say, ah, yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. That's pride to think that I know somehow know better than what God wants me to do. Instead, and we can walk in pride. We can. God will give us a season of that. Thinking, and we can try to puff ourselves up, and then here's what God will do. He will put us down because that's what he says he will do. And all those who walk in pride, he, he will do that. But instead, if we walk in humility, then blessing and honor and all of those things that we desire, that we try to puff ourselves up to actually attain, come when we humble ourselves before God. And then the Bible says, it says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and then he will lift you up in due season. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it works in us and changes us and transforms us. God, we do not desire to be a prideful people, but instead a people who walk with you, a people who are marked by humility so that you can do an incredible work in us and a great work through us. That's our hope. That's our prayer. That's our desire, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.